Uh, hey, before we get started with the podcast, a uh, note to our loyal listeners. We recorded this podcast before the governor signed into law. He just did it, SB 9 and SB 10, two major housing bills. With that, on with the show. The Capital Weekly Podcast is a production of Open California and is sponsored by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Uh, greetings and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard and I am joined by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. And our special guest today is Stephen Dietz, who is the CEO of United Dwelling. Knows about housing, knows about construction, and we wanted to sort of pick his brains a little bit about the changing landscape in housing that may or may not happen. There are a couple of bills on the governor's desk that uh, deal specifically with uh, construction of new units, lot splits. Um, Stephen, thank you very much for coming. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So just one question is the accessory dwelling units, they seem to me to be sort of like granny flats, but it seems a little more elaborate than that. Can you tell us what those are and why they're important? Accessory dwelling units are fundamentally a granny flat. It's a home that's typically 800 square feet or smaller that's put in the backyard of an existing dwelling unit and becomes a new piece of housing. The extraordinary value to that home is that it's being built on land that prior to its uh, installation was deeply underutilized. Typically in the life, certainly uh, 91% of detached garages are used to store junk. It's a terrible use for real estate in fully built out communities with all the infrastructure in place. And instead of housing junk, it could house people. So having access to that land, which is what the ADU rules, notably AB 68 created, is of great benefit when it comes to trying to increase the supply of housing. And then SB 9 um, is really an extraordinary financing uh, bill for those ADUs. Does it give a builder or the locals more control over zoning and planning issues? Does it give them less control? How does that work? I know a lot of local, this is a fight at the local level, has been for years. Um, it seems like the, the state legislation, SB 9, makes certain requirements that have to be followed at the local level. Is that, is that you know, how you look at that? Not, not really. I see it differently. <clears throat> a homeowner in a community that has made a decision that they would like to build an additional unit of housing on their parcel can do so already. They can build an ADU. Their challenge in doing so is the only way to build that ADU, that home for somebody else, is to increase the mortgage on their own home. Basically, borrow against their home to build a home for another. That's a difficult value proposition. And in low and middle income communities that most need the affordable housing, uh, homeowners have a difficult time borrowing more against their house to build the ADU. So the unit, the physical structure could be built anyways. What SB9 does by allowing the lot to be split is it lets that new unit of housing be financed independent of the main house. And that's the extraordinary opportunity that the bill represents. It's to let people who've lived in their homes for 15 years, created a lot of value, perhaps are thinking about how do they afford to continue living there when they retire. And this lets them monetize a little bit of their land by building an ADU without borrowing against their house. And that in turn lets them stay in the communities they've been a part of. So that's why this bill is so amazing to me. Are there any restrictions on whether that uh, the ADU can be rented out? Uh, 
about, or are there any uh, any requirements that the owners have to follow in order to be able to monetize that? Yeah, there's there's a number of requirements that have been put in place, and they've been put in place for two overarching reasons. One is to preserve the character of the neighborhood, and the second is to make sure that uh, you have people who are living there and not uh, temporary. So the big items in the bill are firstly requiring that if uh, for a lot to be split, the owner occupant of that parcel, now the only ones who can split a lot, um, people who live in the homes they own, commits to living there for an additional three years. So it avoids uh, developers buying up houses to con- to increase density. That's not possible under the bill. And the second, which really ex- is comes from the ADU bills and extends to SB9, is that the result in home, if rented, has to be rented for long term, uh, at least 30 days. So it avoids uh, people building dwelling units that they then rent out to tourists. This is intended to spur the supply of housing. Uh, how about, um, I, I know you, you're knowledgeable about garage conversions into living units. What, yeah. what are the kinds of, obviously you have to put in plumbing. Is there kitchens that have to be installed? There's separate uh, things you need to do to convert a garage. There's a number of answers to that question. At the, your end game is that you have to have a kitchen and a bathroom. Um, whether it's a studio or one bedroom or two bedroom isn't so relevant, but you have to have a kitchen and bathroom to be an ADU and then in turn to benefit from the rules that allow them to be built. The devil, though, is in the details of how you do that, how you hook up to the utilities. And that, in order to do it properly, you spend a fair bit of money getting connections to those utilities. Wow. You're talking about like hooking up to the sewer lines and the yeah. water lines and that? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. I thought I heard you say earlier, 800 square feet. Is there a minimum amount, a maximum size in terms of square footage? That There's, uh, there's no minimum size that an ADU or a home built under SB9 can be. Uh, okay. uh, in both cases, the maximum size with one very small exception for an ADU that has three bedrooms, but which would be unusual. The maximum size is 800 square feet. Uh, in Sacramento County, uh, they... We had a ADU law that was 800 square feet. And I think a couple of years ago, they bumped it up to 1,200 square feet. Uh, so would that not, the 1,200 square foot ADU would not qualify under SB9? No, it could. The minimum size is 800. What SB9 does is it says within a relatively narrowly defined range, you have to allow a second dwelling, the additional dwelling unit to be built on a separate parcel. And SB9's value is that it lets the be a separate parcel, which means it's independent, it's financeable, independent of the home. Once the parcel is created, what gets built? SB nine says that your the uh, authorities, the the permitting authorities, must allow a unit that's a minimum of eight hundred up to eight hundred square feet. They can choose to allow larger. So I don't know, but if Sacramento chose to allow up to twelve hundred, they're certainly allowed to be more liberal. That makes sense. Okay. And there's a number of uh, jurisdictions that have chosen to implement laws more liberal than the standards set by the state with respect to uh, the ADU rules. And I would guess that the same will apply to SB9. It's a minimum. Uh, Stephen, would the uh, converting the garage, would the garage have to be detached? And, uh, there are lots of houses, obviously, that have attached garages, at least in my neighborhood. I'm just wondering if it would have to be a detached garage in order to in order to be converted to an ADU? 
So that's not an SB9 question. That's an ADU question. And uh, yes, you, you, can, you can add a second dwelling unit either as part of an attached garage or detached. Okay. SB9, though, is what it allows you to split the parcel into two separate parcels. You obviously could not do that, have two separate parcels with one house on them. I see. One structure. So there they'd have to be, they'd have to be detached. The new, the new building is separate. Is the square footage, uh, co- the cost per square foot, do you have any estimate of the range of that? I can be all over the map. I know depending on what county you're in. Uh, we did remodeling a number of years ago, and I think ours was 110 bucks a square foot to remodel one wing of our house. I'm sure it's much more than that now, but do you have some estimate, uh, just a ballpark estimate, but if people wanted to convert what it might cost them? Yeah, but it, the short answers in the low 200s to low $350 a foot, but there's so many variables that impact that. The first though, is that as a practical matter, it's very difficult to take an existing garage and convert it. What we do is we tear it down and build a new structure that garage was built like yours 70 years ago. Uh, when it was built, it was built to house a car. It has doesn't have footings in its foundation. There's no rebar even in the floor. So in order to build something that meets current building standards as a practical matter, you have to remove it completely and replace it. And once you're doing that, you need to, you know, you've got running utilities expensive. You didn't have to do that in your remodel. Um, building a foundation is expensive. So there's a lot of things that have to be done that are costly before you actually build the structure. Do you have any sense of how many ADUs are out there? I mean, either existing, because ADUs used to be a fairly common thing. I mean, I, I live in you know, the old part of Sacramento and there's quite a few houses down here that have an additional place in the backyard. Uh, and then I don't, I think during the 50s, 60s, 70s, that became less common. But do you have any sense of what percentage of the housing stock out there actually has an ADU? I don't. And that's predominantly for the reason you just stated. Uh, After the mid 50s, about 1958, in a lot of places, well, up until 1958, the way track housing was built, there was a detached garage, typically at the back of the parcel. And starting in October of 1958, the style changed to ranch style and the garage was attached to the house. Um, so that's part of the reason ADUs, once you got lost the detached structure, you didn't end up many ADUs being built. Those that were, were typically built without permits, so they're, they're not really trackable. The, the separate side of that question, how many ADUs are being built now? And I only really know LA County, um, but here we're seeing about 3,000 or so building permits applied for uh, annually, three to 4,000. Are the, Steve, are the um, inspections... The inspection process the same for an ADU as it is for a, uh, you know, for a conventional or a single family home or a dwelling already on the lot? Um, uh, no, it's much more, uh, much tighter. The single family already on the lot gets grandfathered to the rules of when it was built. Uh-huh. Okay. Whereas the structure that we're creating now has to follow the building code as of the day it's in- installed. So we are required to meet Title 24 and be net zero energy. We are required to have foundations and then a structure that's uh, earthquake safe. Um, there, there's uh, fire safety is a big issue. Um, we, in fact, for ADUs, we won't build in high fire hazard areas. It's just you can't economically build a small structure in hillsides or, or in fi- high fire areas. And SB9 specifically precludes building in high fire hazard areas. So, uh, no, it's actually much stricter building code rules than the, the, the original structure. 
One thing you mentioned earlier was the, the idea of preserving the character of the neighborhoods was a concern. And as I understand it on the recent legislation, they kind of took that into account and they, I believe they characterized it as anti-gentrification language. Can you speak to that? Uh, it, was that the, specifically the, the rules about the person who builds the ADU has to live on the property? Is that, is that what that's all about? A lot of questions in there. The rule that the person who builds has to live on the property is very specifically to preclude developers from buying single family lots and tearing down the house and building something new. They only want 80, uh, the second dwelling units being built where the homeowner still has a strong vested interest in the property. Um, so that, that's the reason for that. The gentrification part's actually an interesting ADUs and what's, and, and again, I think as for SB9, the ability to finance them is pretty much the antithesis of gentrification. It's, it's the only thing out there that increases the value of the property, but should reduce rents in the community because you're adding inventory. It lets people who've been in the neighborhood a long time continue to live in the community, but get some of the economic value of the, the land. They, they don't have a strong economic incentive if they can build, if they can finance and build a second dwelling unit on their property, they, they lack an economic incentive to sell it to a developer and move on. Are, are the ADUs exempt from or not covered by rental control, rent controls or other price controls? The analysis of, the, of SB9 alluded to that. They're treated the same as any other new housing. And the rules for new housing are that um, if you get a, when you build new housing, you are exempt from rent control for the first 15 years after you receive your certificate of occupancy. And that's very specifically to encourage developers, encourage homeowners to build another unit of housing. So uh, ADUs are subject to the same rules as any other new construction of, of housing. There are some restrictions I saw that were listed in one of the, I guess it's SB9, um, can't build in, in uh, protected land areas, areas where the habitat is protected, fire prone areas, uh, absent some special uh, exemptions for that, but generally fire prone areas, fire hazard areas can't build there. Uh, so I guess there's a, lot, there's a long list of those. I guess, where can you, what are the most popular areas where you can build ADU units? Are these well, the, biggest the biggest single qualification, both for ADUs and for anything you build under SB9, is that in order to take advantage of the parking rules, which since you're eliminating the existing parking structure in a single family home, and it's only relevant there, um, in order to take advantage of that, you have to be within a half mile of transit. Uh, and, and it's not just any old transit, it's, it's primary transit lines. Oh. That that specific rule is the by far the is the most encompassing in terms of uh, limiting where you can build. Having said that, however, if you look at Los Angeles County, the county as a whole, about thirty percent of the single-family residences that are in the county um, could both do a lot split where they where the, the new property line, because you have to have the new property be 40% of the total size, they could do a lot split and not have the new property line go through the existing house. Obviously, that would make it a non-starter. And they're within an acceptable uh, distance of transit. Those are the two 
uh, limitations that have the greatest impact. And that takes it down, as I said, to about 30%. Uh-huh. of all residential parcels, a single family residence could actually do this at all. There's one other practical reality. Uh-huh. In wealthy neighborhoods, the larger a parcel is, the more valuable it is per square foot. So splitting a lot in, an, in a neighborhood that has uh, expensive housing is economically illogical. Uh, people tend to actually who can afford it, seek to buy the adjoining parcel to get larger lots because they're actually worth more. So you can, as a practical matter, also rule out SB9 as having any impact in communities where property is worth more than about $2 million. It's not a small, I'm sorry, it is a small part of the total uh, population of parcels, but it also is probably the most vocal opposition to SB9 are people for whom it actually will never affect. So for a practical matter, then most of the of the ADUs would be located within the within that transit primary transit hub area. I mean, they would mostly be in the larger cities, more populated areas of the cities. Is that logical? Uh, it's another restriction. You could only do it in uh, in cities as a practical matter. You need a, popula- a population has to be six hundred thousand in the metropolitan area. So this isn't going to happen in small towns. Barring Los Angeles getting better public transportation than it has now, it would seem to me the the larger market for you and for other people that build these would be in the more congested areas of Northern California. Uh, Well, San Francisco comes to mind, but what do you think about that? Uh, I I disagree with the predicate about Los Angeles. Um, Los Angeles does actually have a relatively encompassing public transit system, particularly in low and middle income communities. Um, Most of central LA and almost all of the Valley are served by public transit. Uh, It's the less visible public transit. It tends to be buses, but uh, there's actually reasonably good transit. And the other thing with, with respect to converting a garage, a detached garage into a small home is Prior to the conversion, as I mentioned at the beginning, 91% of the detached garages were not used at night for the car. People park in their driveways. So removing the garage actually doesn't put any cars on the street. They, they continue to park in the driveway. God, I miss a garage. I don't have a garage now. We converted a carport into living space. And I love garages. <laughs> I spend more time in the garage than I would in my living room if I had one. It just seems like garages are pretty, pretty cool. And I think if I had one, I'd, I'd probably convert it too, make some more living space and then build another garage if I could put it on the property. You know? Well, and, you know, we, I do have an experience. I, I built an ADU. I, I own a house, you know, downtown Sacramento here, or mid, you know, outside of Midtown, I guess. And we had a fairly large lot. We built an ADU this a couple of years ago. And we actually put a, a garage underneath the ADU and so I actually have a better, better garage than I had before, because the one I had was basically a plywood shack that had been put up probably in the 40s or 50s and was ready to fall over. And now I have a nice uh, insulated garage on a good slab and the ADU above that. So I sort of got the best of both worlds. Hey, Timmy, do you have uh, in, in the older house, you're living in the newer one now, but do you have tenants up and down on top and bottom in there? Or is there one? Yeah, yeah we have uh, the older house that I lived in had been subdivided into a, an upstairs and a downstairs. So the separate apartment downstairs, probably 60 years ago, it's been in, the downstairs was rental for a long time. So we continued that. So 
my wife and I lived upstairs in the house. The downstairs we rented out to a friend. And then when we moved into the ADU here, uh, we rented the upstairs to other friends. So uh, we went from having three people living on our lot to now five people live on our lot. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, Steve, I just had one last. So, actually, Tim, let me ask you, when you did that, you know, you had to finance uh, either you had cash or most people in the communities we're in, in order to finance adding living space for others, they have to borrow against their house to do so. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the scarier parts. The ADU rules are great, but they don't address particularly in low and middle income communities where we need the housing so badly, they don't provide the ability to finance it. They let you build something that is at its heart, the home run in SB nine by having a separate parcel, you can finance it. Once you can do the lot split and you can finance that new parcel and the new ADU completely independently of your original house, or you could sell it and it would be a very affordable home in a, in a desirable neighborhood. And it was really interesting. So the way we ended up opting to build an ADU. So when we built, when we bought this house, which was 15 years ago, uh, it had a very large lot and basically nothing at the back of it. And so we, you know, we had this little shed garage and put in some, some uh, raised beds for growing vegetables and everything, but really we couldn't even keep up on the lawn because it was, I mean, not the lawn, the yard, because it was so big. And uh, so the idea had been eventually we were going to tear down the old garage and put up a better one with like an apartment above it. But what really got this process started was that we were going to do some work on the old house, which needed it. It, It's a 1913 house. It was, uh, it was not in particularly good repair when we bought it. And so we brought a contractor over to look at doing some repairs to it. And he looked out the window and saw the huge lot and said, gosh, I can't believe you haven't built a, built a place, you know, built an ADU out there. We talked to him about that. And then, uh, we realized that they had just changed the rules in Sacramento from building, I think 800 feet or 850 square feet had been the maximum in Sacramento. And they changed the rules to 1200 square feet. And that changed the ball game because we couldn't get a loan for the 800 square foot uh, ADU. There just wasn't enough pr- potential value in the new property uh, for them to risk our old one. But once we were able to build a 1200 square foot place, that was deemed to potentially have enough value when it was finished to make it worthwhile when we were able to do it. But even, even that getting the, uh, getting the loan on our existing property was we had to go through about three different banks before we found one that would actually approve it. So the financing is definitely a major issue there. And, and that's what SB9 resolves completely because exactly, yeah. now that it's a separate lot with a home on it, it can be financed in the most plain vanilla way with a standard Fannie Mae conforming mortgage. That's the easiest way to finance a home that there is. It's the most affordable way. That's the beauty of SB9. And the, the ADU rules, whether as a standalone or financed through SB9, um, your experience speaks exactly to the value. You took a piece of land that was had some vegetables and weeds growing in it, or in our case in LA, uh, that has junk stored in it and got rid of that and turned it into a home for someone who needed one. That's extraordinarily valuable, you know not just to you, rate. but to the whole community. Uh, Stephen, do you know if the interest rates for financing uh, an ADU are comparable to you know, conventional housing? Presently, the interest rates, because you basically are refinancing your mortgage, it's a cash out refi. 
um, it's a fairly plain vanilla product if you have enough equity and income to be able to qualify for the incremental balance in the first place. And that's where in low and middle income communities that we serve, that's the one of the largest challenges. People who want to repurpose and create a home for someone and under the existing financing structure cannot do so. With SB9 and the lot split, uh, the rates will actually be lower than the homeowner likely pays on their current home because the rates on the new property, because it is relatively inexpensive, it's a smaller piece of land and smaller structure. You know, those are the keys to building affordable housing, low cost land and low cost construction. And the, these two laws together allow that. If you have low cost land and low cost construction, you no longer need to have government subsidies of capital to make the housing affordable. So, so you know, it becomes a, a conforming loan Right now, a conforming mortgage is uh, in the very low 3% range, I believe. So you've been doing this for a while down in Southern California. Do you have any, what you would term a success story, like any examples of people that you've worked with to build an ADU that you can share with us? Wow. So we've built 30 and we have 255 under contract right now. I think the ones we built, almost every one in some way is a success story. Uh, the very first unit we built uh, was a perf- was an example of it was a woman who had was just retiring and trying to figure out how she would be able to live continue to live in her house with the reduced income after retirement, and the ADU that we built for her lets her do that. It increased her increases her income by about twelve thousand dollars a year. That was a big difference for her. That neighborhood average income in that neighborhood is fifty eight thousand dollars. Another twelve thousand is a big number. And the other success was her tenant, is her tenant. The tenant's still there. Uh, Tenant's a nurse working at the local hospital who had been in the process of deciding to resign because she just couldn't tolerate the over hour and a half commute each way because she couldn't afford to live close to where she worked. And three hours on the road every day was really wearing on her. Uh, With the ADU, it's a small home that happens to be walking distance from her workplace uh, so in her moving there, you know, the hospital that she serves got to keep a, an experienced nurse. Uh, our freeways lost one car and a very long commute every day. Uh, a lot of people benefit from it. And then our units, when we build them, anybody building a new ADU is going to be required to make them net zero energy, put solar on. For us, since we're putting the solar power on, the marginal cost to put extra power on and power both the ADU and the main house is very, very low. So our units actually, when we deliver them, in most cases have enough power, uh, have enough solar to power both units. Wow. Uh, Stephen, just one last question I had was just on an average, how long does it take to make one of these from soup to nuts? Is it the equivalent of a you know, larger house? Is it less than that because it's smaller? How many months are we talking about to build one? There's three components to building. Some of them are shortened a little, some can be shortened dramatically. It's absolutely a lot faster than building a house because it's a simpler project. The process of design and engineering for something small is shorter, significantly shorter. And uh, there are a number of companies that have pre-approved ADU designs that have been pre-approved by the city. The design and engineering can be a matter of a week. Versus months for a house. Permitting 
should be. The law says it has to be less than 60 days, but there's a reality with COVID that certain agencies are not moving as quickly as they'd like to um, because they just have people issues working remotely still. So the, per- the process of permitting uh, is for us right now taking about 90 days. Uh-huh. Uh, that should be 45, but it's taking longer. Um, and then there's the process of building. And I look at that from the moment demolition starts until the unit's completed. There's two very, very different numbers there. For us and for others who use prefabricated structures, uh, that's very quick. I think we're amongst the fastest. For us, from the first day, from the start of demo to final inspection is 28 days, and we will get that down to about 23. And for others, it's taking about 35 to 40 days. Uh, there's some things we do uniquely that reduce the time. Once final inspection happens, you still have to get a certificate of occupancy. And uh, again, because of COVID and dependency upon the local agencies, that process is taking us anywhere from 10 days to 70. Um, in the pre-COVID days, that would have been a consistent three days. And it varies by city. Some places like Culver City are same day. They're really, really great. Um, other places take longer. So unfortunately, those three stages have very differing times depending on where you are. But the messy part, the part where you feel like you're on a construction site, is very quick, uh, 28 to 40 days, depending who you work with. Great. Uh, thank you so much, Stephen Dietz, for participating in our podcast and enlightening us about housing issues. And now we're going to move on to the person who had the worst week in California politics. The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. And that actually isn't that hard this week. We picked Jessica Milan Patterson, the chair of the California State GOP, who had a brutal election night with the overwhelming defeat of the Republican hopeful, Larry Elder, the talk show host from LA, who was squashed by the incumbent governor, Gavin Newsom, in the recall election. Tim, what do you think? You know, I would say that as the emblematic head of the Republican Party, she had a pretty bad week. Don't get me wrong. I don't think Kevin Faulkner uh, had a very good week. I think Kevin Kiley had a pretty crappy week, too. I think he came in at, you know, a few digits uh, but it was not a good week for Republicans at all. And Jessica Milan Patterson is, you know, she's bearing the brunt of that on her shoulders. Well, you know, when uh, when uh, Jessica Milan Patterson took over the party, she promised or she said her goal was to make it more inclusive, more di- diverse, a lot of outreach. Um, and yet the party has embraced, or at least she has, and many in the party have embraced issues, Trump issues that were already discredited in California, the candidate who was discredited in California, uh, not getting a lot of traction here. And yet you saw Republicans pushing the the election fraud issue. Um, Something that's happened back east seems to be working in some states, not working here for Republicans. It seems like she's sort of out of touch or the party is out of touch with a lot of mainstream Republican thinking. That's what this election, I think. Here, you know, to push back on that concept, I think the party is in touch with mainstream Republican thinking because I think at this point in time, the average Republican is a Trump Republican. I mean, I think he, I think I just saw a poll that 78% of Republicans do not believe that Joe Biden was legitimately elected president. So, I mean, I think if there really is uh, three quarters of the Republican party believes that the election was stolen in 2020, then 
Jessica Malone Patterson and the people who voted for Larry Elder and voted to recall the governor, they are squarely in the middle of the Republican Party, but it's just, it's pretty far afield of where the average Californian would be. I just don't know how many moderate Republicans there are left in California. I mean, that's a, I guess that's a question for Jessica Malone Patterson. We'll, we'll have her on the podcast and ask. Yeah, we should. Yeah. Well, I think um, the, the evidence that the party has gone to the right or many of the people supporting the party have gone to the right are those issues that they keep restating that keep getting defeated. Um, Larry Elder did, he did respectably on, for, in terms of Republican supporters and maybe others as well, since they outpolled their Republican registration, Elder wound up with about 47% of the vote of those who wanted to recall Newsom. And well, he got about two and a half million votes. So of a shrinking pie of a small pie, he got a slice of that. Well, he certainly did better than anybody else. We should side. clarify, and I've seen this has been going back and forth, you know, if you follow the election on Twitter, like we nerds do, uh, there has been a lot of discussion about the difference in that number. Like people are quoting 47%. He got 47% of the people who cast a vote to choose a replacement. And that was only, I think, 60% of the entire vote. So I think he yeah. actually, of the people who actually voted in this election, he only got about 24% of the vote last last number I saw. Uh, yeah, and, but and people, almost half people, voted for nobody at all. Like, no, the person that won this election was nobody. The nobody. people who wanted to recall Newsom, he got 47% of the vote of the people who recalled Newsom, who wanted to recall Newsom. And he, he pulled two and a half million votes. So it seems to me there are a lot of people out there who buy in to sort of the Trump, like Elder did, who unabashedly declared himself pro-Trump. It seems like there are a lot of people out there that the Republicans have to deal with. I don't know how Jessica Milan Patterson does that, but that's got to be her first. That's got to be her first priority is getting these people somehow getting Republicans back together. They're just barely the second party now in California. They were third after independence. Now they have 24.2% compared to 24% for decline to state. So she's got her work cut out for her. One thing she also needs, she doesn't have uh, a Charles Munger Jr. to funnel money into the party, as far as I can tell. Or a Tom Steyer. Say what? Or a Tom Steyer. Yeah. Um, she's got a Tom, she's got a John Cox who was on his own and in it for himself, but I don't see that he made any, he didn't make any, he got no, virtually no traction at all, despite the overwhelming coverage he got when he announced with his bear running around with him. Uh, so Milan Patterson definitely had a very, she had a very tough week. How she, hey, you know, and, from this. and I think one of the things we're not, we haven't discussed yet is that uh, one of the worst parts of this for her and for the Republican Party is that the person that was sort of seen as the most likely candidate to win statewide office in California got just slaughtered on Tuesday. And that's Kevin Faulkner. No. Um, I don't I don't know that he's even broken into the double digits. And I just saw that he made a statement that he is going to consult with his family about uh his future, his political future in California. And I'm not sure that his political future in California looks very good after Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Hey, Jessica Milan Patterson, if you're listening and you want to come on the podcast and talk about why the Republicans are in a great position in California, come on down. Well, we'd love to have you on the podcast.
Definitely. And, absolutely. And hey, Rusty Hicks, if you're listening, we'll have you on the podcast too. We can actually have both of you and you can talk about uh, your visions for uh, California. So, uh, okay, then there you have it. Tim Patterson, uh, Tim Patterson, <laughs> Tim Foster. Thank you so much. Thanks, John. Uh, it's John Howard saying we will talk to you next time around. Take care. The Capital Weekly Podcast is produced by Tim Foster for Open California. If you enjoyed today's episode, we hope you'll go onto iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week. The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations.